Hear now God's holy word from Psalm 24. The earth is Yahweh's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of Yahweh or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? Yahweh strong and mighty, Yahweh mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? Yahweh of hosts, he is the king of glory. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this praise, this psalm that lifts up our hearts to worship our ascended and reigning king. And so we ask you that as we think on these things together today, that our hearts would be stirred up to worship him, to adore him, to bring him all the honor and glory of our obedient lives. And we ask that you would deliver us through this time from distraction and error. Uh, guide my words, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you love stories, this is a really wonderful time to be alive, especially if the kind of stories you love are these extended complex narratives with a host of characters broken up over several installments. That seems to be the most popular way of telling stories now. This is not the age of the 60-page novella. This is not the golden age of the 40-minute short film. Rather, we get these expanded series of novels that grow longer and longer in page count the further you go in. Dramatic television shows with several seasons, these cinematic universes with multiple movies and spin-offs and prequels and sequels. Now, imagine investing your time and energy into one of these enormous epic multi-part sagas, a story you followed for years, and then when you get to the last 100 pages of the final book, or the last half hour of the final movie, or you get to the series finale where everything's going to pay off, everything's been building up to this, you get to that point and you just put down the book and never pick it up again. You walk out of the movie theater with uh, 30 minutes left. You don't even watch the series finale. And you say, no, no, I'm fine. I really don't care how it ends. Who does that? Who would ever, who would ever do that? You have to be really disinterested in the payoff, indifferent to how it all ends. Or maybe you're just really confused about how stories work. And you think, well, I got all I came for and you're done. As difficult as that is to imagine doing, I believe that's precisely what we have done with the story of the gospel in our thinking, in our reading, in our celebration, in the way that we consider the content of the Christian faith. We turn the story off 10 minutes before we get to the payoff, 10 minutes before we get to the culmination of everything that Jesus came to do. We don't stick with the story long enough to appreciate the vital importance of the ascension of Jesus. 
we sing about and we reflect on and we rejoice in the virgin-born Jesus, in the crucified Jesus, in the risen Jesus, as we must, as we should. Those are all wonderful, praiseworthy things. But we leave off the ascended Jesus, who is the reigning Jesus, who right now sits enthroned over the cosmos. The ascension of Jesus has not always been forgotten or as marginalized in church history as it is today. It was essential. The ascension of Jesus was an essential, central doctrine in the earliest days of the church. It was common to speak of the death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus, to put all of those together. So when Paul summarizes the gospel to the young Timothy in um, 1 Timothy 3, he does it like this. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. That was still that was an important chapter. That's an important event as far as, far as Paul is concerned in the communication of the gospel, that Jesus was received up in glory. He also writes in Romans 8, it is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us. So the story's not over until you talk about the ascension of Jesus. We have the same emphasis in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, which we recite every Lord's Day. We confess our faith in Jesus Christ, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades. The third day, he rose again from the dead, and what? He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. The ascension is a key chapter. It's a key moment, a key event in the gospel story. And the gospel is not complete without the ascension. If we do not reflect upon the gospel all the way through the ascension, we're cutting the story off before the end. This past Thursday was Ascension Day. This past Thursday was 40 days after Easter. Does it seem like it's been that long since Easter? Not to me. It feels like Easter was just maybe two Sundays ago. But it's been 40 days uh, plus after Easter. In uh, the, the text that Nathaniel read this morning, uh, Luke tells us that after the resurrection, Jesus presented himself alive to many groups of people. And then on the 40th day after the resurrection, Jesus ascended bodily into the heavens and he was taken up into a cloud. Now, having been received into the Father's presence, Jesus took his place at his Father's right hand where he now intercedes for us and from whence he rules. Now today, being the nearest Lord's Day to Ascension Day, we celebrate, commemorate today as Ascension Sunday. We stop and reflect on this grand event in the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus, and we consider the significant impact that this has on the rest of our Christian faith. The ascension of Jesus is not a footnote. It's not an appendix. It's not a, it's not a PS at the end of the gospel. I can't think of a single Christian doctrine that isn't influenced and shaped by the reality of the ascension of Jesus. It shapes our Christology. 
that understanding of who Jesus is and what he does. What is Jesus doing right now? Is he wandering the empty halls of heaven, wringing his hands, hoping that we'll pay him attention, hoping that we'll worship him, hoping that we'll love him? Is he twiddling his thumbs, waiting for the earth and the situation here to get so bad that he comes back and rescues the last six or seven of us that are left here on earth, miserably living out a horrible existence? He rescues us and then he damns the rest of the world. Is that, is that what Jesus is doing right now? Well, if we study and understand the, res, uh, the ascension, we understand that that's not at all what the Lord Jesus is doing. The Lord Jesus is presently on the throne over the cosmos, ruling, reigning, interceding. We, the, the, the understanding uh, and the, the theology of the uh, ascension communicates who Christ is. The man, Jesus, our friend, our savior, our good shepherd is the one who is ruling from heaven. And therefore we worship him as Lord and God. Jesus, the God who took on human flesh, the God who redeemed mankind through the suffering of his body, through his obedience, now has a glorified human body. He has taken humanity into the heavenlies, into the holiest place where man is not only accepted now, which is wonderful and amazing, but now where he also reigns. The first uh, Adam was given this opportunity and he failed. Uh, Adam uh, was given dominion over creation and would have ruled over the world, but he failed. The second Adam has been obedient and is now crowned with all authority and power. So you cannot fully understand Jesus, who he is, what he's doing, without understanding his present role. Uh, you, uh, you, 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 Jesus isn't simply an interesting ancient teacher, you know, kind of a fascinating old philosopher. He's not a, a tragic revolutionary who stood up to power and died tragically. No, Jesus is not relegated to the past. Jesus is presently, right now, king. And that's what the ascension teaches us. It fleshes out our Christology. It also shapes our pneumatology, our study and understanding of the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus is bodily, physically at the right hand of God, he is present with us through his Holy Spirit. His spirit dwells in us individually as believers, but also his spirit dwells in us as the church corporately. We uh, together are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of God. But Jesus was incarnate in a single human body. So he could not be present everywhere with everyone throughout the world. So he tells his apostles in John 14, he says, I am going away that the spirit may come. And when the spirit comes, he's gonna dwell with you and he's gonna dwell in you. The Holy Spirit doesn't act independently from the Father and the Son, but the Holy Spirit is sent from the Father and the Son to bring the presence of God near to us and to glorify the Father and Son through us. So Jesus is never physically present with us at any time. Jesus is not physically present with us at the Lord's table. In no way do uh, the bread and the wine ever turn into the body of Christ. He's, his body, the body of Jesus is present in one place and that is on the throne at the right hand of the Father. Yet he is spiritually present with us and that spiritually has a capital S, he is spiritually with us by 
and through his Holy Spirit. So the ascent of the Son and the descent of the Holy Spirit, which happened 10 days later, which we're going to celebrate next Lord's Day on the day of Pentecost, the ascent of the Son and the descent of the Spirit are these two interconnected, interlocked, important, uh, inseparable doctrines. <clears throat> so uh, the, the ascension helps us understand the Holy Spirit. The ascension impacts our ecclesiology, our study and understanding of the church. What is the church? The church is not a club for do-gooders. It's not a place where you get a little pick-me-up when you're feeling low. That's not why we exist. I hope you feel okay. I hope you feel good. I hope you're inspired. I hope you're encouraged. But that's not our mission. Our, our mission is not to help you feel better. Um, the church is the people who have been raised up together with Christ, who have been made to sit in the heavenly places. The church is the place where you come to have an audience with the king, where you are united to his kingdom. In the church and through her worship, you are heard by your king. Your king speaks to you through his word. You are taught by him and you feast with him. He feeds you there. And it's the only place on earth where any of this happens in this way. It is in and through his body, the church. We're not, we're not reenactors here. We're, we're, not, we're not just, you know, playing out some old ancient ritual just because um, we have a weird hobby. You know, it's just kind of a weird hobby to get together and do this. Or we're not, we're not live action role players of, a, of distant ancient events. We are a, a historical society that keeps old songs alive. That's not who we are. Paul calls us the church of the living God. We are the living stones of a living temple with a living savior who is actively working in and through us. The ascended Jesus reigns in and through his church. And so the ascension shapes our view of the church. The ascension shapes our eschatology, our view of the future. The Lord Jesus is right now in a real place called heaven where his rule is absolute. It's unquestioned. And he taught us to pray that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a prayer that he is going to answer that his kingdom will come and that his rule on earth will be as fully manifested and absolute as it is in heaven. <clears throat> We pray this prayer and we pray that the earth will be transformed. We pray that the nations will indeed be discipled, that the church will be successful in her mission of discipling the nations. So the ascension demonstrates that the earth is not a lost cause, that Satan is absolutely not going to win in history. How do we know that? Well, we know that evil's not going to triumph because Jesus has already triumphed. He has already been crowned king. It's not a question. It's not a matter. It's not up for debate. It's not whether or not that's going to happen. It already has. And all that's left is the mopping up through the gradual progressive growth of the kingdom throughout the world. And as, as Psalm 110 says, he is seated at his father's right hand until his enemies are made his footstool. He intends to conquer the world through his church. He doesn't get up and leave the father's right hand until the earth is subdued. And how does that happen? Well, it happens through the faithful labors of the church in discipling the nations and calling all men to repentance. Well, those are just a handful. That's just a handful of the theological implications of the ascension of Jesus. 
But my goal today is not to just help you think about the ascension with correct thoughts. I want you to rejoice in it. And where better to uh, look for words of worship and for words that help us focus our worship on the ascended Christ, but in the Psalms. Through the words of the Psalms, we uh, find shape to our, our worship of this ascended uh, Savior. The Psalms foretell the work of Jesus and they praise him for every one of his mighty acts. And the Psalms don't leave out the ascension. Psalm 47, for example, sings, God has gone up with a shout, Yahweh with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is King of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Psalm 47 joins the concept of his going up, of his uh, uh, victory uh, triumph uh, uh, parade, his, his triumphant parade. He, 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 the, the psalm unites that with his enthronement, with his reign over the nations. Those two things go together. Psalm 68 sings, you have ascended on high, you have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that Yahweh might dwell there. Uh, the Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 68, you have ascended on high, you have led captivity captive. Paul quotes that in Ephesians to talk about this train of happy captives who, who Jesus has liberated from the kingdom of darkness. We are, his, we are his bounty, we are his plunder, and yet we're happy about it. We're happy because we have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness, and now we follow him in his train, in his triumphal procession into the heavenlies, and he, uh, we are both the bounty and the recipients of his bounty, the recipients of his gifts. And this picture comes up over and over throughout the scriptures of the ascension as this victorious, triumphal entry into the heavenlies. Uh, Psalm 24 wonderfully captures this image as, as it invites us, Psalm 24 invites us into the heavenly realm to rejoice with the angelic host in the enthronement of our victorious Savior, our ascended Savior. The psalm opens with a statement about the sovereignty of the creator over his creation. Let's work our way back through it. Look at verse 1. The earth is Yahweh's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Uh, everything belongs to the God who made it. Everything belongs to the creator. And everyone who is in that creation has a duty to serve, worship, obey their creator. In parallel poetic verse like this, as we find often in the Psalms, we have a statement and then we have a phrase that illuminates that statement, that elevates it, that amplifies it, that glorifies it. And this is true in this as, as well. Um, we have that first phrase, the earth is Yahweh's and all its fullness, the world and those that dwell therein. Do you see how the second line doesn't simply repeat what the first line says, but it changes it and it amplifies it, it glorifies it. Uh, and it informs the meaning of the first, and the first informs the meaning of the second. So we have the earth is Yahweh's and all its fullness, the world and all those who dwell therein. So we have the earth and the world as, as parallel concepts. The earth refers to the planet, the physical 
home of mankind. But that lines up with world, and the word world there speaks of uh, the nations, the inhabited land, the world of men, society, culture. And so here we have both the planet and the nations. Here, God has created both. And then the earth and all its fullness is, is speaking of the glory of the earth. What is the glory of the earth? Well, the, the abundance of animal life and plant life, the mountains, the beaches, all the things that make earth uh, lovely and beautiful. But that phrase is echoed in the second phrase. What is the glory of the world? What is the glory of the inhabited land? Well, it's the people. The people, the occupants, the inhabitants of the world. The people are the adornment, the glory of the world. The people are not the parasites of the world. The people are not enslaved under the creation. They are the crown of creation, placed in dominion and rule over creation. Creation is under our feet. And in the ascension of our Lord Jesus, man is restored to his place over creation. In the garden, man submitted himself to a beast and became enslaved to the beast and all that is beastly. But now in the ascension of Jesus, he is replaced in his position of authority over the creation. And in verse two, we read, he has founded it. He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. God has not only created man, but he has given them a home, a stable place to dwell. Uh, 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 he's founded the land over the chaotic and tumultuous waters. This is all relevant because of God's great blessing toward the inhabitants of the earth. Because of his creation and his preservation of their lives, they have an obligation, every man and woman and child everywhere has an obligation to serve him and worship him. All men everywhere, no one is off the hook. No one gets a pass. I hear more and more people say boldly, and I, maybe it's just the things I'm listening to or the things that I pay attention to, but I hear, I hear people say boldly, I don't care what the Bible says. There's no fear in their voice. There's no reverence at all. I don't care what the scriptures say. I don't, I don't care what your book tells me to do. They mock what God has declared. They scoff at the idea that the scriptures have any authority over them. But their denials don't change the reality that they are accountable to their creator and they will stand before him in judgment. I guarantee you on that day, they will care what the Bible has to say. They will care what God has to say on that day. I mean, they're not gonna love him. They're gonna hate him still, but they will care. So here, because of God's creation and preservation of all of our lives, we must draw near to him to hear what he has to say so that we know how to obey him. But how do we get close? How do we draw near? How do we come into his presence? That's the question in verse three. Who may ascend into the hill of Yahweh? Or who may stand in his holy place? This has been the question ever since the fall of Adam. Because of Adam's high-handed act of rebellion, man has been driven out of the presence of a holy God. God cannot tolerate our wickedness, our rebellion, our corruption. So, so we're, we've been driven off the holy mountain of, of Eden, driven out into the wilderness. How do we get back in? How do we get back into paradise? How do we have access to fellowship with God since 
he placed armed guards there. He put angelic guards with flaming swords at the entrance of the garden sanctuary. How are we going to get back in? Well, we're going to get back in through fire and the sword. First of all, we get animals to represent us through the flame and the sword. The animals are cut up and they're burned on the altar through the times of Noah and Abraham. They're animal sacrifices where we get back into God's presence, where we have fellowship with God through animal representatives. Uh, later on, we add uh, that we need certain men to represent us. Moses was a representative of Israel who ascended the hill of Yahweh. That's the question here. Who's going to ascend the hill of Yahweh? Who's going to stand in his holy place? Well, Moses did that at Mount Sinai. Moses went up there for us. And then once the tabernacle is established, we get priests to represent us on the hill of the Lord in his holy place. The tabernacle is like a portable Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was this massive mountain that had lightning and fire and smoke at the top of it. But here in the tabernacle, we take Sinai with us. We have a rock that has fire and smoke on top of it in the altar, and we get to move that around the wilderness with us. And we have a priest who ascends that mountain, who goes up into that holy place, into the hill of Yahweh for us. Later on, a more permanent temple is established on Mount Zion. You, you catch the theme here. It's all mountains, Sinai, Tabernacle, Temple on Mount Sinai. These are uh, Zion. Um, these are all mountain sanctuaries where man meets with God through representatives. We have animals to go through the fire and sword for us. We have, we have priests who go into the holy place for us. But we find out over and over and over that these human representatives are weak. They are insufficient. They are flawed. They are, Im they are imperfect. They are limited and they die. They don't last forever. Moses can't go into the tabernacle. Moses isn't allowed into the Holy Land. The priests who are supposed to teach us God's law and uphold his uh, holy standard, the priests fail us. They fail to instruct Israel. The whole book of Judges is about the failure of the priests. The fall of the house of Eli opens up uh, uh, the book of uh, 1 Samuel, and we have the ripping apart of the tabernacle because of Eli's unfaithfulness and the unfaithfulness of the people. So we're still left asking the question, is there anybody who qualifies? Is there anybody who can go into the presence of God and make intercession for us? Who can go stand before God for us? And represent us. That's the question of verse 3. Who may ascend into the hill of Yahweh? Who may stand in his holy place? I know, verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. Well, it's not until Jesus that we get that blameless and righteous priest, that, that man without blemish, that man without imperfection, without sin, he is our suitable intermediary who can ascend confidently up the hill of Yahweh, who can stand boldly in his holy place. Does Jesus have clean hands? Yep. Does he have a pure heart? Yes. Has he not lifted up his soul to an idol? Amen. Has he ever sworn deceitfully? No. He qualifies. He is the one who can ascend up into the mountain for us and stand before God. It is through Jesus and through his ascension that human nature has full access to God and his fellowship again. Our communion with God, our fellowship with God that was lost all the way back in Eden 
has now been restored in Christ and we're no longer at arm's length from God. There are no longer these divisions and orders and degrees of holiness among mankind where you have a priestly people and a priestly tribe and high priests within that tribe. The fact that Jesus has ascended into heaven and that he has been enthroned there means that God the Father has accepted his work, that God has approved of his son's work, and that the Lord Jesus is the final and acceptable and perfect and eternal mediator between God and man. So we don't need any other. We don't need any other intercessory. We don't need any other intermediary. God approves of and blesses his son to fill that role and to do that job. And here's the great part. Here's the beautiful part of this. In blessing his son, he blesses us. The acceptance of Jesus in the presence of the Father is our acceptance. Since you are united to the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, guess what? You have clean hands and a pure heart. His works have been applied to you. Christ's ascension is our ascension. We all are familiar with this concept that Jesus died for us. We are united to him in his death. And if I were to ask you, uh, is, is, is his resurrection applied to you? You would say, yes, I have life because Jesus has come out of the grave. So we're, we're comfortable with that language, that we're united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection, in his life, but we are also united to Christ in his ascension. Romans chapter 6, Paul says, we're buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. That's a concept that we are well familiar with, that we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. But keep reading a little further down in Romans 8. It is Christ who died and furthermore also is risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. His ascension to the right hand of the Father is our ascension. His conquest is ours. So just as surely as you are united to his death, and his resurrection, you share in the blessings of his ascension. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You have died with Christ. You have been buried with Christ. You have been raised to life with Christ. And not only that, the story's not over. Don't turn it off. Don't put down the book. Keep reading. You have ascended with Christ. His ascension is your ascension. He has ascended for you. He has ascended with you. And because of this, all of the blessing and all of the righteousness that flows to Jesus flows to us from the blameless one to his people. Verse five, he shall receive blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. We started talking off about a pure, we started off talking about a pure one. 
a, a, a holy one, clean hands, pure heart. Now we're talking about a people. Now we're talking about a covenant people, a generation of those who seek him and who seek the Father's face. They are now pleasing to God. They have been made like him. So all that's left to do is just break out in song and, and, and rejoice over this incredible turn of events. And that's what we get in the next four verses or so. And I'm going to read them again. Verse 7. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty, Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the King of glory. These verses capture the sheer delight and the exuberant welcome that Jesus received when he returned to heaven after his faithful labors on earth. You have experienced having a loved one going away and coming back. Maybe they went into the military and had a tour of duty. Maybe they even faced uh, combat and they went into a place, a dangerous place. Or maybe you've had people go into uh, um, missions trips in foreign lands or maybe even move away to college or do some other kind of work. And then when they come back home after a long period of time, when they've, uh, when they've been spared any calamity, when they've been uh, delivered through any tough situation, you meet them at the airport. You have a banner, you have balloons, you, you make noise, you really rejoice and you receive them. Now, take that picture and magnify it, multiply it by about a billion, by infinity. Can you imagine the party, the welcome, the reception that Jesus received after his work on earth was done? Imagine how all of the angels and saints in heaven broke out in absolute jubilation upon the arrival of Jesus into heaven upon his ascension. This is why Psalm 47 says, God has gone up with a shout. Yahweh, with the voice, the sound of a trumpet, all of the heavenly orchestras and all of the heavenly choirs and every voice in heaven, all of the cherubim and seraphim, blasted out this song of victory. He was hailed and received the way a triumphant general or a, or a victorious king would have been greeted back into a city. This is reminiscent of how young David was praised after his victory over Goliath when he carried the giant's head to Jerusalem. After, after killing the giant with his own sword, by the way, he carries victoriously the, the giant's head and plants it on a hill outside of Jerusalem. So Christ has defeated Satan with his own sword. Satan thought that the cross was a sword that was going to destroy Jesus, but Jesus uses Satan's own sword to, to crush his head. And now Jesus ascends into heaven with the crushed head of Satan as his trophy. I remember back after David kills Goliath, Saul asks three times, who is this? Whose son is this youth? Who, who is he? Who is he? It's, it's like my kids joke and they say, who this is? Who, who am his? Who, what do y'all say? Who, 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 who that boy? Who is that? Who that boy? So <laughs> that's something like that. Um, that's what Saul was saying. Who him is? Who, who this boy? Who is that guy? Saul keeps asking this question. And now in Psalm 24, 
The angels ask this question. The hosts of heaven say, who is this king of glory? Who is this king of glory? Not because they don't know the answer, but because they want to provoke the answer. They want to hear his name some more so that they can adore his name, so that they can adorn his name with glorious attributes. Who is that? Who's coming? Who, is that who I think it is? Who is coming? You know who that is. Yahweh strong and mighty. Yahweh mighty in battle. Yahweh of armies. He is the king of glory. The return of Jesus to his father also stirs up images of the return of the prodigal son to his father. Remember how that father, in the story that Jesus told, that father ran to greet his son and he embraced him and he kissed him. He robed him. He decked him with jewels. He crowned him with glory. He killed the fatted calf. They ate and they made merry. Why did the father do this? Well, he did it because he was a good father. And of course, um, God, the father in heaven, is at least as excited to he see his son as the father in that, in that story. But the father says, here, here's why he does that. The father says, for my son was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. In the same way, the Lord Jesus left the house of his father. He went to a foreign country. Jesus gave away all that he had. He spent his father's inheritance, not because he was sinful or because he was disobedience, uh, disobedient, but he spent his father's inheritance in order to join himself to us in our sin and disobedience and exile. Jesus became the prodigal son for our sake. Prodigal just means wasteful. Jesus came and spent everything that he was given by the father, even his life, his life was spent so that we could be like him, so that we could go with him back to his father's house. Now, the difference between Jesus and the son in that story is Jesus doesn't go as a rebellious son. Jesus goes as the obedient son. And when Jesus returns home, the son who was dead and is now alive the son who was lost and is found, Jesus brings with him into the presence of the rejoicing father. Jesus brings with him all the prodigal sons, all the wandering sons. He does this so that, as he told Mary in the garden next to the tomb, remember he told Mary, I do this so that your father becomes my father. Uh, my, I'm sorry, that, so that my father becomes your father, so that my God becomes your God. He brings us into the presence of his father so that his father becomes ours. And when the father sees the son, he runs to him. All of heaven in Psalm 24, all of heaven turns its attention to the returning king. The gates lift up their heads. The doors are lifted up to hail the king. Who are the gates that lift up their heads? Gates don't have heads. In the ancient Israelite city, it would be the elders in the gates who would first see the returning king, who would lift up their heads to watch the triumphal train of the victorious general. The elders would lift up their heads, but this is the heavenly city that receives Jesus. Who, who are the heads? Who are stationed at the gates of the heavenly city? 
Well, in Revelation, John tells us that the heavenly city has angels stationed at the gates. The angels are the everlasting doors who lift up their heads. They are now no longer blocking access to paradise with flaming swords, but they're ushering in the one who has clean hands and a pure heart and all those who follow in his train. Uh, angels are like the older brother in the prodigal son story in that they didn't ever leave they didn't leave the side of the father to go uh, be incarnate and live among man. Uh, they don't know what it's like to suffer the way that we do or to be tempted the way that we are. And yet, uh, unlike the older brother, they are not embittered at the return of, 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 of Jesus. They're, they're not angry about it. They rejoice. They lift up their heads and they sing and they give praise to his name as his, as his triumphal train enters the heavenly city. And so we go with Jesus in his triumphal entry into heaven. Because of the ascension of Jesus, we all now enter the heavenlies with Jesus. We do this in worship every single Lord's Day. Hebrews 12 says that um, we have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the church in heaven, to God, the judge of all, uh, and to Jesus, the mediator through the blood of the covenant, in worship, we are directed by the Spirit into the heavenlies. We acknowledge this every Lord's Day when I say, lift up your hearts. And you say, we lift them up to the Lord. And then we sing the song of the angels, the holy, holy, holy. Uh, we're recognizing that that's what is happening, that by the Spirit on the Lord's Day, we are being ushered into the presence, into the throne uh, room of God. But we're not held at arm's length. Because in Jesus' humanity, we are welcomed in heaven. Our prayers are heard because in Jesus, we are fed spiritual food. We're brought into, into his presence on the Lord's day. Because of the ascension, we realize who is presently in charge of the world. Who do you think has all of the authority? Who has all the influence? The World Economic Forum, the United Nations, the WHO, technocrats, are they in control? Presidents and prime ministers, judges, who is in control? No, none of them, not by a long shot. Christ gives humans delegated authority, but he can delegate it because he possesses it. All human authority is derivative. All human authority is derived from God's authority. No human authority is absolute, but Jesus's authority is absolute. Jesus reigns right now and for eternity. No one is ever going to depose him from his throne. Satan doesn't reign and Satan doesn't win. We're not, we're not waiting around for Jesus to reign someday. Jesus is king today and requires our obedience and our worship in all things. The ascension reminds us, it shows us who is in command. And because of the ascension, that means we're not playing defense. We are on offense. When, when it comes to our conflict with the world and our warfare against all the powers of darkness, when it comes to our battle against ignorance and error, don't ever think for a minute that we're on the losing side. Don't act like you have anything to apologize for or that you need to be timid or keep your head down so that the bad people won't be mean to you. 
We, we get this mentality that we're these poor, defeated stragglers. We're just trying to make it to the end, just walking on eggshells around wicked people so that we don't offend the sinners in their sin. We don't want to offend the rebellious in their rebellion. We just want to make nice and be nice. We assume that they've got all the power. They're the winners. We're the losers. They make all the rules. They get to define reality. And we just have to take it and accept their definitions and accept their categories because we're really powerless. And on top of that, you know, we're kind of embarrassed because we have all these crazy, unscientific beliefs. So you don't want to have to defend any of that. So just don't make a stir. Don't create problems so that they don't make fun of you. You understand how crazy that is? Do you understand how that mentality is absolutely insane? When it comes to the reality, when your brother, your king, your savior, who poured his life out for your redemption, who has given you his life, your brother, your king, who feeds you at his table, that same man, Jesus, sits over the cosmos. And anyone who denies that, they're living in a fantasy world. If you deny that, you are living in la-la land. You, you might as well believe in, you know, orcs and elves and, and, and uh, uh, crazy, you know, uh, leprechauns and everything else. You're not living in reality. You're living in a fantasy world. Anyone who opposes him and his reign is set for destruction. Those who embrace him, who submit to him and obey him have eternal life in an everlasting kingdom. Let these truths, people of God, let these truths reverberate in your head, in your heart, in your home, in your office, every day of your lives. Read the gospel all the way to the end. Grab the ascension and the truths of the ascension so you may live bold, confident, happy, joyful, obedient lives because Christ is king and he reigns forever and ever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice in your son, Jesus, who reigns right now over us, who speaks to us through his word, who hears our prayers, who feeds us at his table. Father, may we never forget this or marginalize this critical truth, but may we live in its light and in the implications of this in every part of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.